from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I sort of have refused to add a new social media platform sure. to my life, whether that's TikTok or Mastodon. Or, Do you envision I, a way where you might migrate your following from Twitter to somewhere else? You know, I'm not sure. I think I think as an organizer, my best and highest use is is always to figure out how to connect with other folks and and more and more as someone who's on the ground here in St. Louis that's offline. Oh, I'm staying to the very <laughs> end, um, in part for the historical archives. The archives of, of movements and the voices of people and the identities of folks. But also, you know, this is, it, it's akin to living in Missouri. Like, I do not like that government, but I love this state. At its best, Twitter is about connecting, building community. And it didn't necessarily lead to change on the ground, but it did lead to documentation. It was legally required to maximize shareholder value, not to make democracy work better. It's a way for people to talk back to power. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Twitter has come a long way since St. Louis native Jack Dorsey co-founded the social media platform in 2006. Many considered it an important public utility before the world's richest man, Elon Musk, bought the company for $44 billion three weeks ago. Musk's leadership has been erratic. Key actions include changes that made it easier for bad actors to impersonate people and to commit hate speech and harassment in the absence of content moderation. Something like three quarters of Twitter employees have left the company through resignations and firings. But Twitter played a big role in the Ferguson uprising and for other activists since then. What has Twitter meant to them and and how might they navigate a post-Twitter future? Joining us to talk about it are Kayla Reed, co-founder and executive director of Action St. Louis. That's a grassroots racial justice organization that works to build black political power. Kayla Reed also co-founded the Movement for Black Lives Nationwide Electoral Justice Project that seeks to counter vote suppression and mobilize black voters. And joining us is author Syrah Kenzior, the New York Times bestselling author of Hiding in Plain Sight and View from Flyover Country. Her newest book is called They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Kayla Reed and Syrah Kenzior, thanks so much for joining the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, uh, Kayla, going back to 2014, when a Ferguson police officer killed Mike Brown, were, were you already active on Twitter at the time? I had a Twitter profile. I think I had like 237 followers, just people I knew from high school, college, things like that. But I wasn't on it nearly as much as like the other platforms, Facebook and Instagram at the time. So at the time you were big on Facebook and Instagram? More so, yeah, than Twitter. Absolutely. As as the protests continued, how did your use of Twitter change? Yeah, I think um, I saw other people using it when we were out on the streets and I started to... Um, sort of live tweet what was happening um, day after day in uh, Ferguson and throughout St. Louis. And I think what I found was, you know, you got to sort of democratize information in a way that folks who were not in St. Louis or not even at the protest were able to see what was going on versus waiting on the 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. news cycle Mm. to sort of summarize hours of activity. And it, it was a place that I felt like created opportunity for just sort of a collective consciousness raising where folks were able to sort of tap in from far away, as far away as overseas or just in different states and felt um, compelled to stay um, connected to the story. And actually what I've been witnessing since this sort of takeover of Twitter 
um, is people sort of reminiscing on that, like how important Ferguson mm. was as of one of the first moments for a generation to witness um, mass political action taking place and, and get to be a part of that conversation. And we want to hear from listeners. Have you found community on Twitter? Are you worried about where it's going? You can give us a call at 314-382-TALK. Or at last check, you can tweet us. That's at STL on air. The old email tubes still work. You can email us, talk at stlpr.org. Sarah Kenzier, I want, to, I want to bring you into the conversation in just a moment. But, but Kayla, listening to your response about those early days of the movement and, and Twitter, it sounds like you're using it for a couple things. One, inter-movement discussions of operational things on the fly, mm-hmm. right? The police are trying to kettle us into Street X. Don't come here. Mm-hmm. But also it sounds like there's an element of maybe getting a perspective out into the discourse that the national media who had just swung by were not getting. Is that part of it? Yeah. I mean, if you think about a protest like the uprising, there were thousands of people out there. And what you would often see on a news clip or even in an article that you would read is maybe one or two voices who people would consider sort of experts or, you know, folks that the media identified as a voice. And I think what Twitter did was like it democratized that. It said everyone's voice matters. Everyone should tell their story from their perspective. If I'm on the front lines, if I'm a neighbor, and if I'm a community member just in the neighborhood, if I'm a student experiencing this, it brought in sort of um, a wide variety of voices and opinions and perspectives to sort of show the full breadth of what a movement actually takes. Mm-hmm. The struggles of it, the beauty of it, the pain of it, the fear of it. And I found myself, you know, I, I said in a tweet last week, I didn't journal during the uprising. I didn't go home and like sort of debrief it. I would tweet. And so when I think about my own sort of evolution of political thought and analysis, you sort of see that growth and trajectory take place on Twitter and people liking or following each other create a community. I go to places all the time and run into people who I who knew me through that hashtag Ferguson and who are who are doing different things with their lives because of the way that they interacted with that conversation. Sir, how important has Twitter been in, in movements uh, connecting themselves with each other? Oh, very important. And I agree with everything um, Kayla just said. And, you know, one thing I want to add is that it's very important now for the historical record. One of the things that I'm worried about um, if Twitter should go under completely is that all of these records of people's direct experiences uh, in protest movements and revolutions across the world uh, and so on will be lost and may be rewritten um, because there isn't necessarily a backup for that. But, you know, I joined Twitter in 2009 when there was a revolution in Iran. Uh, there, was a, there was a revolution in Iran right now. And so, you know, the records of all of these global struggles, uh, how people connect with each other, how people from different countries can advise each other tactically, uh, strategically, uh, that's all there, which is, of course, one of the reasons uh, powerful plutocrats uh, want to destroy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the Boston, Sarah, the, the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013 was one of the first big news events in the U.S. people point to as a time when people use Twitter as a source for information. But, but even then, it was largely journalists from legacy news outlets who were using Twitter to communicate, but then you, you could go see their content somewhere else. Uh, did Ferguson stand out to you as a situation where the newsmakers, the, the protesters, were using a platform to be heard by people outside in real time? 
Yeah, it did. I mean, especially because I live here, uh, you know, and I had a national platform at that point. You know, I had like 20 or 30,000 followers, which is small compared to now, but was big then. And one of the things that it really brought to light was the discrepancy between the way that the national news media portrayed what was happening in Ferguson, where they were constantly trying to make it look like the whole region uh, was on fire. Um, you know, they often were downplaying uh, the, you know, structural critiques of the protesters in, fi- in favor of sensationalism. And then you could hear directly uh, from people on the ground and also just what it meant to folks emotionally, what it meant to black communities in North County. Uh, That was really important. And I do think local news did a much better job um, covering that than national news. But there's always been this kind of, you know, Twitter versus the national media vibe, even though the national media, um, you know, grabs tweets and, and often, you know, kind of steal stories and stuff like that. But it's a way for people to talk back to power. I think that's the greatest legacy of, of Twitter is that people can speak to reporters or politicians or CEOs or whoever that they normally would not be able to directly interact with um, and just tell them what they think. They often won't respond, uh, but at least they're able to convey their dissent. Kayla, what was like? What was that like for you on the ground? I think, you know, over time, Twitter, I've used it differently. I think, you know, as, as Sarah said, in 2014, for me, it was sort of a daily chronicling of what was actually happening on the ground, the the routine of getting off work, going to the protests, dealing with the sort of abusive practices of the police that were well documented and wouldn't have been documented without things like Twitter and Periscope, the live streaming tool that has sunset since then, but people actually being able instead of waiting on CNN or MSNBC or even KSDK, um, we're able to sort of follow people who were on the ground. And I think about folks like Bassam, who has since passed away, Mm -hmm. um, who would be live streaming every night that folks sort of connected to these on the ground. We we didn't mean to become journalists, but we were sort of on the ground storytellers and and living it too, right, which gave it a a certain sort of different legitimacy versus just sort of bearing witness. Um, And I think when I, as an organizer now, as someone who leads an organization that our primary tool of of bringing people into understanding their own power is organizing. We know that social media plays a really important tool in that. And so at its best, Twitter is about connecting, building community, politicizing folks in real time. We are watching different conversations happen every day, right? The the phenomenon of people finding humor and and solace and connectivity on on a platform is important. I think if Twitter goes away, you actually start to see, you you will question how people who maybe were not on the front lines of dealing with things like racism or sexism or misogyny and the impact of movements like Ferguson, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, don't have a place to sort of create onboards to that consciousness and onboards to those values and people that shapes our democracy, that shapes the way people move in our community now. And I think Twitter has been important in that and it's going to be interesting to watch it uh, continue to change. So you're talking about Twitter as a vehicle for organizing. Yeah, it right? has been. I definitely think it has been. I think when we have thought about, um, you know, in 2014, we were witnessing, you know, Mike Brown, Tamir Weiss, Sandra Rillian. These people in different cities knew the names of people who were dying at the hands of police in places that weren't their communities, in places that were their communities that we actually never talked about before. And that was just a new sort of error in communication. And I don't think that you get um, the phenomenon that is the movement for black lives. You don't get the Me Too movement. You don't get um, the 2020 protests without people being able to log online, know community activists and organizers in their community, see the march, 
turnout where you have millions of people in the streets in 2020, that's an evolution that sort of comes out of the way social media was used during the Ferguson uprising. And hearing all that, Sarah, it's been popular to refer to Twitter as a global town square or even a public utility. But but it was a corporation, mm-hmm. right, that was legally required to maximize shareholder value, not to make democracy work better. Sarah, what, what do recent events tell us about a system where such an important communication medium can be bought up by the highest bidder? Yeah, it's disturbing. It's a privatized public sphere, and it always has been, and there's always been uh, apprehension about that because, you know, if, it, depending on whose hands it falls into, depending on what kind of moderation uh, practices or, or algorithms are used, that could change the course of interactions, which then change the course of policies, which then changes the course of history. And so it's very alarming um, that that much power could fall into the hands of, you know, one corrupt individual and their backers. And here, you know, I'm not just talking about Musk. Um, If it weren't Musk, it would be somebody else. Um, I think a lot of people see, uh, you know, the value in this, and there isn't really a replacement for it. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what people are looking at now. They want to jump ship. But everything that's out there is really much more siloed, or it's dependent on video. Um, You know, this is a very quick, live-action, text-based format, you know, where if you're witnessing something, you could write it down quickly and it can go viral uh, very quickly. That's a very powerful tool and there's no way to really replicate it or else, honestly, I think people would have left earlier because of the problems with uh, harassment and and threats um, and things like that. Um, But it will be a great loss. Uh, if it goes under, uh, precisely because people will be, uh, you know, stranded and unable to uh, organize and communicate in the way that they have now for a decade and a half. And you talk about the potential for, for in, you know, influencers, uh, outside influencers and affecting the platform itself. It's, it's popular to say that Elon Musk spent $44 billion on Twitter, but he didn't open up his wallet and pull out a $44 billion bill, right? I mean, where did where else did this money come from? Yeah, it comes from a number of international backers, including Saudis, uh, Qataris, a lot of uh, international banks uh, helped him out, Uh, you know, really uh, took a village. And, you know, what's alarming is Musk is aligned with people like um, Peter Thiel, you know, all of these uh, extremists who really, uh, you know, they they prop up dictatorships. Uh, They find all of these social movements uh, to be a profound threat. And so, you know, it's worth it to a lot of these regimes uh, to, you know, pal up with Musk in some respect, either financially or just through uh, other means of support, to make sure that dissident movements uh, cannot rise. And that applies to Iran. It applies to Arab dictatorships. It applies to Russia. You know, Ukraine is a country that is using Twitter right now very effectively, um, you know, for to convey information to the world, uh, to, you know, capture uh, the sympathy and the attention of the world. There are a lot of people uh, who would benefit from this. And then, of course, just plutocrats and oligarchs whose finances and dirty deeds uh, were plastered all over Twitter in a way that they normally would not be uh, in the mainstream media, because the media is, uh, you know, often owned by people connected to those oligarchs um, and plutocrats. You know, Twitter is where everybody's dirty business got aired, no matter how powerful you were. And it didn't necessarily lead to change on the ground, but it did lead to documentation. Mm. And I think capturing that documentation, potentially erasing that documentation, uh, is very valuable uh, to certain individuals, more valuable than $44 billion. 
And we are talking with author Sarah Kenzior and Kayla Reed, co-founder and executive director of Action St. Louis. Kayla, are you looking for alternatives now? No, not yet. I think Sarah Sarah spoke beautifully about how it feels. I think, you know, as as an organizer, uh, I, I certainly use the app less than I did in 2014. I think a lot about the archives of, of movements and the voices of people and the identities of folks. That doesn't just sort of give us 50 years from now just a, who Kayla Reed will be in 2050, but the, the sort of arc of myself in a real way. So I, I don't know how, how we replace Twitter. I am hopeful that there are young brilliant-minded people who will create other pathways for us to continue to connect and learn together and share. And like I said, at its best, it's about consciousness raising and connectivity. At its worst, it's been a place that has perpetuated a lot of harm on the local level, on the national level. We've seen since even Musk has purchased um, Twitter just the increase in harassment and um, racist language and sexist language and homophobic language and people feel empowered. I, I can't help but think about the shooting that just took place in Colorado and how people some there's another side of Twitter where people are coming on and getting politicized in a way that is dangerous and it is um, perpetuating ideological thoughts that are actually materially harming folks. And so my hope is that we continue to see new platforms pop up and and that we figure out a way to preserve the legacy of Twitter as a place where um, at its best people learn together and, and motivated each other to do something about the things that are wrong in our society. A caller from Hannibal mentions that they just deactivated their Twitter account yesterday, uh, concerned about banned users coming back to the back to the service. Uh, if you have thoughts, you can give us a call still at 314-382-TALK or tweet at us at STL on air. Sarah, you're, you've been highly skilled at using Twitter to publicize your work. You're a prolific poster of threads, often related to themes you've researched in your books. What are your plans right now as far as using Twitter? Oh, I'm staying to the very <laughs> end, um, in part for the historical archive, but also, you know, this is, it, it's akin to living in Missouri under the extremist right-wing government of Missouri. Like, I do not like that government, but I love this state. I love living here. And so on Twitter, you know, what is valuable to me is the community there, are the people I like there. The people I like on Twitter are much more important to me than the people who I dislike. And I actually think a lot of the you know, problems that um, some folks are, are newly bringing up, not Kayla, because I know she knows all about this, but like the harassment issue goes back, you know, decades and really started to get bad around 2014, mm-hmm. around the time of Ferguson. And so none of that is really new. And when I see folks reacting to it now, I'm like, yes, I agree. It's absolutely horrible, but it's been there the entire time. So Shouldn't we stay and have the backs of people who need help, of people who should be supported? Um, You know, because otherwise, I think a lot of, you know, uh, social issues don't get examined and a lot of people are kind of left in the lurch, uh, left feeling uh, alone in the way that they felt before social media networks came along and, you know, overcame geographical boundaries uh, that separated people before. Uh, one social network that's been growing explosively just in the past couple of days is, is Mastodon that has some similarities to Twitter, but also some differences. Sarah, can you continue your work there? I don't think so. I'm not on there. There are a number of people pretending to be me on there. I'm not. Oh. But, you know, one thing I heard about Mastodon is that, um, you know, a lot of folks get kicked off if they don't bring, quote unquote, good vibes. And I'm somebody who studies dictatorships 
and transnational mafia. So I really doubt that what I'm going to say <laughs> is going to be full of good vibes. And if I do have good vibes about those topics, uh, you should be uh, kind of alarmed. So I think I'd get kicked off of there quicker um, than I'd get kicked off of Twitter. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I'm just going to see where the dust settles. You know, if Twitter explodes, I will go somewhere else. I mean, if it literally doesn't exist. But Mastodon is not uh, particularly appealing to me at this moment. Mm. And, you know, even Mastodon, the community standards are, are changing really quickly as it's flooded with new users. Uh, the, the practice in the past had been for a content warning on just about anything topical. And we're finding yeah. users starting servers where that's no longer how they go about things. So a month from now, the service could look a lot different. Have you post? Have you poked around on Mastodon at all, Kayla? No. I've, I've seen people talking about it, but I sort of have refused to add a new social media platform sure. to my life, whether that's TikTok or Mastodon. Or, Do you envision I, a way where you might migrate your following from Twitter to somewhere else? You know, I'm not sure. I think, I think as an organizer, my best and highest use is is always to figure out how to connect with other folks and and more and more as someone who's on the ground here in St. Louis that's offline um I think that Twitter has served a time and a place and will continue to be a valuable resource for a lot of folks and the true change right happens off of social media happens in mm-hmm. our communities and we have to continue to reach people who are are the people who in 2022 have 236 followers like I did in 2014 and create ways where they feel valuable. Because I think, you know, Twitter has evolved a lot of personalities. It has created a lot of um, its own sort of elite circles of people who mm-hmm. are considered the activists of activists and the voices of voices. And I think it, it really is important to continue to figure out how we make these spaces accessible to folks so that we can onboard people into talking about these things uh, continuously. And Kayla, hearing about your, your your stories, it underlines to me how we need to keep a couple things in mind at the same time. Uh, yes, there's a perception that, oh, slacktivism, Twitter's a place for slacktivism, right? People might go on and send a tweet and feel like they, they made a difference that they may or may not have made. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But it's not just about shouting your opinions into the wind, right? It's about people finding each other and then doing stuff in the real world. Yeah, I think one aspect of consciousness raising is to learn, right? And then the next step is to do something about what you've learned and with what you've learned. I was a pharmacy technician when I got on Twitter the day Mike Brown was killed. Now I run a racial justice organization that works on issues that I hope are changing the city for the better. And so for me, Twitter has always been an important place. It will always be an important place. But the the value of what we've been able to do, like movements like Ferguson, Me Too, the Fight for 15 movement, is to create a large enough base of people who believe in a certain thing and are willing to do something about it, whether that's vote, join an organization, you know, come to a protest. And I think Twitter made people courageous because it showed other people um, finding their own courage and voice. Sarah, it sounds like over on Twitter, you're you're on the bow of the ship, kind of on iceberg watch. Uh, is there is there anything that can be done at this point to to change this trajectory? I mean, some of this is up to what Musk does in terms of just you know how many people he fires, whether there are engineers that can keep the site going. You know, those are infrastructure concerns. But I think if people are using Twitter uh, to fight against you know autocrats, to fight against uh, oppressive you know groups or individuals. They should think about the way they use it, you know, not amplifying or or quote tweeting people who are saying hateful things, but instead, you know, expressing commentary in your own words, you know, thinking about what you are for, aligning with other people who share the same... Yes, with uh, people who share the same the same values and the same desires to to create change in, in the world, I think is what Sarah's talking about. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, for me, it's 
I saw the news that Trump is back on Twitter. I never followed Trump. <laughs> and so my, my Twitter verse has remained uh, what it is. And I think people should be alarmed at the um, the trajectory of Twitter, but also this is a time and a place to lean more into the values of, that we believe in and to continue to organize for something better because we all have a voice, right? And how loud it gets isn't dependent on how many people follow you on Twitter. It's about what you're willing to do um, with the values that you have. Kayla Reed, co-founder and executive director of Action St. Louis. Thank and we you. were speaking with author Sarah Kenzie, or we won't get to hear a goodbye from her, but this is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.